Welcome to Making Sense of MarTech, an irregular set of conversations with some of the most interesting people in marketing, tech, and advertising. I'm Juan Mendoza. I write MarTech Weekly Newsletter. It's a weekly email that covers important shifts in marketing technology. People who work in the world's largest media, tech, marketing, and advertising companies read it. You can read, listen, and subscribe at themartechweekly.com. Okay, today I am joined by Tim Burrows. Tim is the former founder of Mumbrella, one of the most significant media organizations servicing the marketing and media industries in Australia. And Tim's also the founder of uh, the recently launched Unmade newsletter. It's a popular publication, explores topics centered around technology and media, but it's actually based on uh, his first book of the same title called Media Unmade. And it surveys more than a decade of technology disruption in media, publishing, and advertising in Australia. So Tim clearly has a very unique perspective on how technology has changed the landscape for media um, in Australia, but also uh, globally as well. Tim's been in the room. He's been seeing these discussions and decisions play out as leaders try to adapt to a changing environment of content consumption and consumer change. So today we talk about just that. What exactly did the last decade look like throughout this change in the media landscape? Why has Tim pivoted to newsletters and what is driving media innovation today? And now I give you Tim Burrows. Hey, fantastic to be with you. And it's, uh, I, I do feel slightly cheating when I talk about the book sort of covering the decade, because I think in the end, I covered that 12 year decade of 2010 to 2021. Uh, but yeah, what a what an amazing time. And I suppose I was lucky to both be a business owner that was in publishing and experiencing the changing environment of MarTech, but also a journalist writing about it as well. So, so yes, in, in some ways I got to sort of uh, buy, I guess, two tickets to the show. <laughs> it's great to have you. I mean, let's talk about the show for a little bit. You know, um, I think you began your career in print journalism and then you progress into blogging. Can you give us a little bit of the rough ev- edges around your career and what it's looked to date and what led you to eventually publish uh, your first book, Media Unmade? Yeah, look, I'm, I'm old enough, uh, having gone into newspapers, in local newspapers in the UK in 1989, to have, in my first few months as a journalist, trained on a manual typewriter. So I was, I, I was there when the, the computers arrived in the office. I was, I was there when we got our first fax machine. I was probably there when we got rid of our fax machine as well. Um, so I, 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 you know, initially wrote, I, I suppose uh, there's a different discipline when you're writing for a local audience. You know, you're, you're writing for, as you know, I used to be told by my, my, my first chief reporter, you know, Sid and Doris down the road. So you're, 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 you're trained to look at everything through the, through the lens of, how an ordinary person in your locality would think about things. Um, then stayed in print for a while and moved into sort of more specialist journalism, firstly as a, uh, eventually as editor of uh, a publication for hospital doctors called Hospital Doctors, it happens. Yeah, wow. um, and then the, the thing that took me to writing about our world, which I was always fascinated by, you know, my once there was such a thing as a homepage, my homepage was always Media Guardian in the UK, even when I was on places like Hospital Doctor, but then I became editor of Media Week in the UK, which that focus was on the intersection between media agencies and media salespeople. So that was, I suppose, where I really began to get in deep in our world. And I I arrived at uh, a Media Week sort of um, not long after the, uh, the turn of the millennium at a point where we were still every year talking about whether this year would be the year of mobile and whether uh, being able to skip the 30 second TV ad was going to kill the uh, media industry. So um, it took a few years to move beyond those two things, but I think we have firmly got there. 
and then gradually I edged closer and closer to Australia. I, um, I worked in the Middle East for a while, launching the, 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 the local franchise of Campaign magazine out of Dubai, and then came to Australia as the editor of uh, B&T magazine, which was still a weekly magazine at that point. Um, and then after doing that for two years, started Mumbrella, which was my my home for a bit more than a decade. So uh, so sort of hopped around um, and then um, uh, towards the second half of last year, uh, decided that it was time to make the jump and do my own thing again, having having uh, sold Mumbrella a bit more than four years ago. Um, and uh it really felt to me like it was time to explore the newsletter world a bit more, which is what I'm doing now with Unmade. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a fascinating story. You know, we, we mentioned just before that you've been in the room and you've seen so much change, you know, from writing with typewriters to fax machines to the first computers to using laptops and then the internet exploding. You know, there's just so much to take stock of there. And there's so much we can learn, particularly, I think, around the next generation that are coming up. They don't know a world where, like you mentioned, where trade publications like BNT were magazines. You know, and that's one thing that really struck me about the book was surveying, you know, what was media like before the internet age? And what did the relationships look like between advertisers and partners and and uh, and the uh, the av- and the actual media bodies as well? So I think there's going to be some fantastic tidbits to talk about here. We're going to talk about at the end of this uh, podcast about your decision to go into newsletter writing and your sort of uh, pivot towards that. So that's going to be really interesting as well. So let's get into the book. Now, I've been reading it. I have been cracking up laughing, Tim. There's some absolutely bonkers stories in this book, surveying the history of media and uh, advertising disruption. And, you know, I think there's a really great quote when you open up the story, um, which actually I think suggests uh, that the period that we've been working through, particularly around the, the past 15 years, I think it's seen the most significant change in communications history, and I'm pretty happy to back that. But I love this quote that um, is right at the front end of the book. It talks about um, this disruption in this way. It says that, you know, this is a story of media people being dealt bad hands, playing them as well as they possibly could. Occasionally, they play them brilliantly. Sometimes they altered the fate of their organizations. Sometimes, despite their best efforts, it was already too late. And, you know, if you look at the, the media landscape today and you look particularly from the tech community, they look into it and they say, well, you know, um, by and large, because of the internet, media has been hobbled by the changes brought about by tech giants. Um, and, but I actually think that narrative needs a little bit ch- a bit of challenging. I think what you do really well in the book, Tim, is is talk about some of the of the, the leaders in the media industry and how they've actually were able to sort of seize the day or leverage this change as well. So, wh- how do you survey the media landscape today, and what uh, do you think the winners are doing well, particularly in the media space? I think now it's it's clearly a landscape that's splitting between the big global tech players and then the smaller but sometimes quite big local players and how they respond to that opportunity challenge threat all of those things that these these technologies produce I suppose one of the things that really struck me not not just about the last decade but even before is there is something of a history of the big existing media players getting their act together just in the nick of time and <laughs> sort of saving the day and, and 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 being able to kind of you know navigate their way through and i think particularly in australia you also can't ignore the often closeness between the big media players particularly the ones who cover news and the government of the day and the help that this can sometimes give them in their battles sometimes internally sometimes externally with with the rest of the world when it comes to their own interests so that it it all becomes this very interconnected thread where you tug on one part and it it affects something at the at the other end and of course you know many of these players had their own digital ambitions as well you know you can't you can't escape the fact that in australia we have um you know news corp as one of the dominant voices which of course is a 
globally dominant voice. And if you if you look at the period I was writing about in the book, which, as I say, sort of really began to focus in 2010, MySpace was still in the game then, owned by News Corp. So that, you know, that that's the first of many big what ifs. You know, what if the people at MySpace had been the first to get the idea of a personalised news feed rather than, you know, Facebook was well on the way by then, but rather than Facebook and Zuckerberg being the one to, to, to devise the idea of the news feed first, what if it had been MySpace? How could things have been different then? You know, could, could News Corp have ended up as dominant in the digital world as they were in the print world and arguably still are? Mm. Yeah, I, I think that's fascinating. I mean, it's not just social media that News Corp were an early investor in. It was also a lot of the marketplace businesses as well, which was I thought was absolutely fascinating. So realestate.com, you know, a lot of those companies are actually um, either partially or wholly owned by um, media organizations. And I think that's absolutely fascinating as well. It's We can't say that media has not been innovating or trying to innovate. It's just that the bets perhaps didn't play out in which um, they wanted them to play out. And there was, a, I think there's a different way of thinking in the tech community about um, human interaction, what keeps people on platforms, what keeps people engaged and interested, which is, I think, is sort of completely different mental, mental models with the media space. I think that is a really good point because... In the end, you can only have one customer in mind. And sometimes, you know, some publications, absolutely the reader is the customer. But for others, particularly advertising-driven models, and we're thinking of traditional television in particular, the customer is the advertiser and the audience are just the people to be monetized. So that that definitely changes how one serves that audience. And that's been one of the really fascinating pivots over the last uh, over the last decade is seeing advertising-led organisations recognise that their future may lie in subscriptions. You know, it will still be mixed revenue models, but, you know, you've, you've definitely seen it in the newspapers. And then as they become online news publishers, they've begun to prioritise the paying audience first, advertisers second rather than the other way around. We've also seen the same adjustment. We've also seen the same adjustment in the television industry as well, where, of course, we've gone from ad-supported TV, which will always be there somewhere, through to the subscription model, where all you care is whether somebody will renew their monthly subscription to see the next episode of whatever the hit show of the time is. Mm. Yeah, I think there's it's innovation from the technology front, but also from the content as well, which I think is often downplayed in, in media by and large. I think in terms of content, I think media organizations are always innovating in that space as well. It's not just around technology. I think it's also content and how they actually get audiences across. You talk about this really great story from The Voice and Channel 9, how after year after year, they were struggling to find a really good hit show to actually drive that audience. But eventually, they stumbled on something, a formula they found in the US, and they brought that to Australia. And I see that crossover with the US and Australia uh, media, particularly around content ideas, was particularly a strong point, I think, um, over the past 10 years. But, you know, I think there's an interesting piece here about talking through, of course, the tech giants. So, you know, you've got Google, Facebook, you've got also um, Tencent in China, you've got ByteDance slash TikTok in China. Um, you've got these tech giants that have really taken a huge slice out of media budgets. Advertisers have been obviously preferring uh, to spend their budgets in those larger tech platforms. I feel, definitely feels like the tech landscape is changing once now we're in the roaring 20s. You know, I mean, there's new players, there's all these different new models. I mean, for example, TikTok, I think they grew their audience to uh, a billion users in half the time of Instagram. That was some news out of last year. And so, you know, you're saying this book, that this great quote, it says, you know, digital disruption helped break the old media business model as classified advertising leaked away. The weaponization of social media helped break democracy and Australia's regulators belatedly tried to confront Google and Facebook's growing power as those tech giants took control. And so, you know, I think by looking at the, for example, the Cambridge Analytica scandal that broke, uh, I think back in 2018, the January 6th insurrection 
and even the past few weeks with the sheer volume of misinformation and, and confusion around what's actually happening on the ground with the crisis in Ukraine, there has been a big shift, I think, in terms of how big tech is being perceived. And I think a lot of that actually comes from moderation of content, which has been a very strong point of the media organization. You know, the whole uh, concept of an editor exists to ensure that, you know, the quality of information and the veracity of the information, you know, it's true, right? And uh, it's high quality. But now everybody can be their own citizen journalist, quote unquote, you know, they're publishing 24-7. So, I mean, what are you making of some of the I guess the increasing negative sentiment around big tech companies. What role do you think media plays in that? Yeah, I, I think I, I, I should confess myself. I, I, I'm among those people who had a broad view that overall the likes of Google or Facebook were broadly a benign trend for society and for the industry. Hey, look, you know my. My very first experience of Google I can think of, I was talking about, you know, how long I've been a journalist is mm. when the internet was beginning to come through, I used to keep a notebook on my desk and the newspapers at the time would have little articles about a useful website and I would tear it out and I would staple it into my notebook because there was no search at that point, you know, so just the usefulness and utility that, that Google brought at that point was huge. Um, but I think, yeah, I think looking back where where I suppose it began, the narrative began to change, although behind the scenes, the reality had changed earlier, was, as you say, the Cambridge Analytica scandal, where it really became a bit more obvious just how much data Facebook had and how relatively unprotected it was. And, and I must admit, at the time, even then, I thought that would kind of blow over, you know, broadly. Facebook provides so much service and utility for connecting people um, and actually so much helpfulness for advertisers as well that, 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 that it will come through it okay. But I suppose I look, you know, I look back now and I think, well, where Google deserves a lot of praise is for seeing where the word world of programmatic was going so much earlier than anybody else. So as a result of that, they invested big, they made some really big acquisitions and ended up owning broadly the whole programmatic chain to the extent that the content creators have ended up not getting a fair slice of each digital dollar. Now, I suspect in time, and I'm thinking this might may yet be years, that will correct itself because it always does. Um, but that was, you know, that was a way sneaking up on the media owners. Now, you can look at the some of the deals Google did over the years with media owners to make sure that they were getting their traffic. They were being able to run it through their own ads. And of course, what that also then meant was, although the, the media owners didn't see it, the traditional, the traditional media owners, that is, didn't see it. They were not developing the in-house expertise to fight a fair fight. So you've got that, that going on. And for me, that's the big narrative of Google. Um, but hey, credit to Google for being smart and clever enough to do it and fighting business hard and winning. And then for Facebook, it was just the, 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 the damage to democracy done by the ability for misinformation to spread. We obviously saw it in the pandemic. We saw it as you've alluded to in, in, in the US with the misinformation around Donald Trump's claims to have won the presidency in the, the second time around. And that, that in the end is the one that for me is the real net negative is at the moment, it feels like the contribution to society has gone the other way. So, so I, you know, I guess to take a broadly optimistic view, I suspect what will happen in time is the regulators around the world will get to grips with it. And they're very slowly doing that in Australia, in the US, in the UK, and, and Europe as well. And some of these companies will get broken up. And that's no bad thing. You know, it's a price for being so good. It won't actually be a terrible thing for the shareholders, because when companies get broken up, usually the shareholders do quite well, because they create new companies with new value that compete with each other. So, mm -hmm. so I must admit, my, my sense for the tech landscape is... We, we, you know, we we need some old school breakups, and that 
when they finally happen, whether it's voluntarily by these big tech companies or forced upon them by the regulators, it will be good for the whole ecosystem. Yeah, I, I agree. I think there's it's an interesting one to unpack in terms of looking at what the trajectory is across how government regulating, but also how tech companies are regulating as well. I mean, you know, uh, I think there's an interesting perspective around how Apple's rollout of privacy controls over a particular the past 12 months, ATT, which is Apple's tracking transparency rules, how much that's rocked, absolutely rocked the advertising world, particularly around third-party cookies and the ability to track people in apps. Um, but it also has damaged Facebook's business as well. You know, there was some big news just recently about Facebook's earnings and uh, slowing user growth in their last call. And yeah, they've dropped sort of a huge amount of valuation of billions because of uh, a lot of the changes around user growth, but also the ability to do targeted advertising based on Apple's changes. So you've got you got the big tech companies regulating parts of the industry as well and enforcing privacy to an extent. But then you've also got uh, government bodies. So GDPR in Europe, you've got regulation in California as well. And then we're starting to see some media regulation, if you want to call it that, in Australia with the News Media Bargaining Code, which we'll touch on in a little bit. What I do find fascinating about this space is that we do have players like Tencent and players like ByteDance uh, and their ability to penetrate, and also Shein as well, which is an e-commerce business, but their ability to actually penetrate Western markets from China is completely changes, I think, a lot of the dynamics around whether or not uh, these companies should be broken up, purely because you don't know much about TikTok. So for example, we know a lot more about Facebook and the data they're collecting and uh, what kind of things they're doing to mitigate misinformation. Then we do about TikTok because it's just a different um, government, it's a different type of business in a different region altogether. And so there's an argument, I think, to say there, well, you know, if you break up tech companies in the US, you know, the big players, US, uh, Google and Facebook, that may actually mean that we'll know less about the extent of the impact of uh, some of the negative harms of social media companies in particular as well, as well as search and um, also other types of content businesses. But what's your view on that? I mean, I'm still thinking through whether or not that's the case. I mean, I kind of agree with you that they perhaps should be broken up so that it allows more competitors to come in, which means more choice. But what do you think? Yeah, look, I think, hey, look, bringing in the sort of the, the dimension of kind of, I guess, the non-Western democracies, new products coming out of there, that that definitely does change the dynamic. You can see the likelihood that Western governments begin to form views on all of that, particularly, you know, when you just have less transparency of the relationship between an organization and the Chinese government, for instance, or, you know, obviously we've not seen anything major come out of Russia in terms of big technology platforms, but mm. so you'll, you'll, you'll probably see a moment with the likes of TikTok where they are either forced to provide some sort of data separation that is absolutely inviolable. And that probably means a breakup or the Western governments will do something about that just because of the ability to use and target that data. So that that moment of conflict is probably to come at some point. Um, if I had to take a guess, I, I guess it would come out of the hawks in, in the US. And of course, you have this extra political aspect as well. You know, you sort of mentioned California and then, of course, kind of being led out of Texas, but a whole bunch mm. of the attorneys general from around the country are doing their own thing in terms of going after particularly Google, but also Facebook and in, in the programmatic advertising change where they're, they're doing it through prosecutions. But of course, these attorneys general, they're, they're basically politicians and they're vying for more power and they tend to, you know, down the, the road, run for bigger roles and bigger offices and eventually end up running the country so so it 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 feels like there's a there's probably a sort of sweep or a movement towards greater oversight and it will probably be forced downwards from the regulators but as you say you have got balancing forces like apple for instance where it's very i, I suppose 
very easy might be unfair but it's easier for them to be a champion of privacy when it does also su- support their business model as well so the the wins behind them on that one but hey you know right now that does make apple a really good sort of counterbalance to arguably google and certainly facebook I think a jury's still out. I mean, it's it's a very complex space. It's moving all the time. But I actually want to take a step back and talk about, you know, the emergence of the web. I mean, you were around at that stage. You were working in industry at that stage. And you probably heard the concept of the information superhighway. You know, and then back then it was like the big media companies that were going to take over the internet and make it the, they're going to be the monopolies. They're going to be the big platform businesses, right? You know, the Warner Brothers and the, you know, the, the various sort of um, entertainers, even Disney, you know, like looking at, okay, well, these are the companies that have been doing entertainment and media. They're the ones that are going to create this information super highway, right? But, you know, I think thinking about the emergence of the web, and what I call, you know, the internetification of content, which really led to, I think, an expectation that high quality media would be free and instantly accessible. That wasn't true, you know, 30 years ago. That wasn't a reality for consumers, for people like you and me. I think that's had one of the more devastating um, impacts in print media specifically, but in also other forms of media. But, you know, I think it's not necessarily a force created by one single tech player. You know, I don't think it's just Facebook. It's just Google making these changes and having this forcing function on how our consumers, regular people um, approach information. But I think it's actually more the nature of the web itself. You know, you say that, uh, you know, (laughs) like regardless of tech innovation, print journalism is absolutely necessary for the function of society, you know, and we continue to see that even today, that it holds truth to power. It's probably what um, undergrad students learn when they're going through that, you know, it, it does have a absolutely critical function in democracies. And you say, well, when it comes to media, it's probably not good enough to say, well, you're going to miss us when we're gone. You know, it hasn't never been much of a business model. As consumer expectations shift and the internet was brought to the masses, how did you interpret it? How did you navigate that? What do you think the damage of that change mass consumer expectation has been on the on the news media industry? And look at you, that that you'll miss us when when we're gone quote was from Clay Shirky and kind of went around the world and similar, you know, it feels like that's one of those defining quotes, a bit like uh, Jeff Jarvis's one, the shortened version of information wants to be free as well. Um, and I I suppose, again, I if, if I go right back to looking at my days on local newspapers, the, the world in which I came through was a world in which you had a journalist sitting in, or sometimes more than one journalist from rival papers, sitting in the back of the room in the council meeting every night, you know, whether it was the planning committee or, you know, the, uh, I don't know, entertainments committee, the, 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 the big council meeting. You know, most nights there was some sort of meeting and there was one or two journalists in the room. And generally they were keeping each other honest by neither one wanted to be the first one to leave and miss the story. Um, you had journalists sitting in pretty much every courtroom around the country. You had journalists arriving at the police station each day to hear about what had gone gone on and talking to the to the fireys, talking to the ambulance people, all of those. So get this real picture of what was going on in local democracies. And that's the bit that's mostly, for the most part, lost now. You know, I I for the most part, nobody now has the facility to have local journalists covering every small moment. And the problem with that is we don't know what we don't know because the decisions are made when someone's not in the room, they're not there for the arguments and the debates, even if the result comes out somewhere down the track. So so I'm sure, certainly at a local level, probably at a national level as well, there's a little bit more corruption than there was before maybe a lot that's one of those things we don't know so so that that I think is the biggest single loss in the change of model to society is the at the local level I think you know that's that that's the part of the model that hasn't figured it out yet you know arguably the national and metro news providers 
have got a model. Um, certainly in Australia, they have thanks to the, the news media bargaining code, but locally for the most part, it hasn't been worked out. And that's, um, yeah, that that is just kind of a bit depressing and a bit sad because that's the bit I just don't see a way back. Yeah, it, it is a sad reality. I think um, that local journalism has really been suffering under this um I guess the commercial framework in which media lives in now, which I mean, even I think it was last year that News Corp announced a number of other consolidation of media publications across smaller regions. And the reason for that was, yeah, that it just, they're loss leaders. They just cannot drive revenue. They cannot drive growth because the numbers aren't there. And when you reduce media into a numbers game, you know, it's really all the big players will win and then everybody else gets lose. You know, it's, it's almost one for one with almost every social media platform. There's a 1% of influencers who get the lion's share of YouTube videos, the lion's share of, uh, of followers on TikTok, and then it's everybody else. Right. And, you know, I think that's, it creates a disproportional sense of, yeah, I mean, information environment and actually how uh, we're getting the right kind of news that's important to our local communities. Um, but, you know, it's interesting um, talking about recently, actually, the ABC reported that because of the news media bargaining code in particular, that the deals that they have done with Google and Facebook, they were actually able to hire uh, 50 more regional journalists. So, you know, you do have some interesting aspects there as well. But let's talk about the news media bargaining code. I mean, it has been a bit of a train wreck. Um, Tim, if I could call it that, over the past 12 months, there's been a lot of confusion. I mean, at the start of last year, we had the government come out and say, well, yes, you'll have to pay news media organizations to effectively host content on Google and Facebook's services. Uh, services. So you, you, you look at that and you say, well, you know, that's kind of like a link tax almost, right? Like it's always been a symbiotic relationship. There's always been tech companies that have been feeding news media organization um, audience and uh, clicks and, you know, the outcome of that. But also news media are providing the raw content for what made these organizations quite large in the first place. Not fully, but I think partially that's been a big part of how particularly Google, I think, has become such a massive successful business is how they were able to take a lot of that news media, original journalism, and leverage that to drive audience. So, you know, I think looking at this and how um, it's all played out, you know, we had a bit of a media blackout on uh, Facebook last year. <laughs> because of this, they stopped hosting links to all the Australian uh, media organizations in retaliation to the bargaining code. And then there was a bit of a coming together at the end and, and working through a deal. And I think it's it's obviously resulted um, in a settlement where uh, a lot of the media, uh, a lot of uh, Facebook and Google in particular have been able to actually make their own deals with media organizations, you know, which led to ABC being able to receive um, some funding. I think it's about $200 million that have been dispersed so far from this deal. But others have been left out in the cold. And even in March, when we're recording this uh, podcast, we've had uh, a number of independent media organizations in Australia going on strike for 24 hours to say, well, because of the deals that were done, all the top end of town, the big players in the media space, they got their slice, but it absolutely means that there's a, a very uh, competitive uh, struggle for those smaller organizations that don't get any sort of funding for Facebook or Google, even though they contribute in exactly the same ways as those larger media companies. And so, you know, how are you seeing this situation play out? I mean, there's a lot of different perspectives on this, but you've seen these cycles of change. You've seen the disruption over the years. How are you interpreting all of this? I suppose if there's something I really just am fascinated by and enjoy about the whole process is what a wonderful example it is of that intersection in Australia of big business interests and politics, because that, that's been the driver. And you get at the other end this grubby, but overall broadly positive outcome, I suppose. But what a what an ugly way to get there. You know, so you, <laughs> you 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 know you have to sort of go right back to you know the decision of the coalition government to ask the ACCC, the 
Australian Competition Consumer Commission mm. to look at the digital platforms. So to run the digital platform inquiry, which is still ongoing, they're only halfway through. Um, so there's been some really insightful work done about the programmatic advertising chain. But there was also a big piece about the imbalance between the media owners and the large platforms, particularly Google and Facebook, which saw the ACCC put forward the News Media Bargaining Code. And I must admit, when they first proposed, I thought it was nonsense. To your point, it looks like a link tax. It looks like rather than having that value exchange of we send you the traffic and you monetize the traffic, um, you know, having to pay for the right to send the traffic. And then it gradually began to dawn that actually the government are serious and they are going to legislate on this. And, you know, one of those pieces in the legislation was the fact that they would have to negotiate and then the mechanism for deciding the negotiation was both sides would put a proposal and the arbitrator wouldn't pick an answer in the middle. They would decide which the more reasonable proposal was. So potentially this was you know, going to be massively expensive for Google and Facebook, but also potentially was set up a global precedent, which they obviously would have hated the idea of. Now, it began to feel like Google picked up the vibe first that if they threw enough money at the media owners, perhaps they could avoid being designated under the code. Facebook was initially more aggressive, which is, as, as you say, was when they they actually shut off Australian news from the ecosystem, which and they were clearly doing that as an example for the rest of the world. But I think also they were unprepared for the blowback because, you know, right at the moment when the regulators are asking, are they too powerful? They, they, they cut off the voices of Australian media. And in the process, considering there were bushfires going on, there was a pandemic, they cut off a lot of important information sources as well. So they, they, they came back to the table and as I'm sure you'd remember, there were negotiations behind the scene between, you know, went right up to Mark Zuckerberg and to Facebook and Josh Frydenberg within the government. And effectively, Facebook came to the agreement as well that, yes, they would throw a lot of money at the media owners if they avoided being designated. So it then became this balancing act between Google and Facebook of, OK, well, how many deals do we have to do and who do we have to do these deals with? in order for it to be enough to not be designated. Uh, and of course that bit wasn't in the legislation. So it is all about just rail politic. And there is a mechanism that the ACMA, the Australian Competition and Media Authority has a part in, in designating which news organizations should be covered under the news media bargaining codes. So there's a bunch of criteria. You've got to have a turnover of more than 150,000 a year. You've got to follow certain industry codes of practice, all of those things. But effectively, the idea is you could be registered as a media company and then knock on Google and Facebook's door and ask them for some money if they're designated under the code. Mm. And this is what we got to this week, where a bunch of the smaller players... Um, have found that Facebook have just been wasting their time. They've not been. They've either been doing meeting after meeting, and they're not doing a deal, or just not giving the money. The probably the most famous two examples are SBS and the Conversation, the, the, the platform for academics, are among the biggest. But they're not the only ones. Broadsheet made a lot of news this week as well. And this is the kind of fundamental unfairness of it, if there is one. Is the big players have got theirs, the small ones, even if they've been registered under the ACMA code are struggling to get Facebook to talk to them. So the question now is, will the coalition government, potentially the Labour government, if there's a, a, a change of government in May, will they have the ticker to designate, and probably it would only be Facebook, because I think maybe Google's done enough, but will they have the ticker to designate Facebook under the code because they haven't helped out the local players? It'll be absolutely fascinating whether that becomes an election topic because I don't, I don't think so far Labour's commu Shadow Communications Minister Michelle Rowland has really stated a view. And of course, we come out the other side and, and we're still halfway through the review. And if there's a different government in, will the same appetite remain to go as hard on Google and Facebook? 
when so much of this conversation has been driven at the political end by the conversations at a high level between the, the government and News Corp. You know, it seems a, a fairly well-established fact that the whole news media bargaining code was News Corp's policy pursued by the coalition government. Will that happen under a Labour government? It'll be interesting to see what happens there. Yes, I, I do think that the story is definitely developing um, as we go. But I think just to pick up what you were saying before about Facebook's approach, reaction to this type of quote unquote regulation is, yeah, the Facebook uh, shut off news to send a message to other world governments. because It's not just Australia that are thinking in this way about the role of news media in the context of technology businesses. Other world governments are thinking about it as well. And you have not just that, like media regulation, if you want to call it that, you also have privacy as well. You have content regulation, you know, so there's a bunch of different pressures coming from all angles from tech co's. And so I think Facebook's approach there was quite interesting to send a message like, hey, we actually will shut off news completely, you know, which, you know, I think it's, there is, I think, a lot of change I think we will see in the next 10 to 20 years in this space. You know, we've had 15 years of more or less being the wild, wild west, particularly around privacy and tracking and user data. But now I think a lot of those walls are caving in and actually are forcing um, some change. So I definitely think it'd be an interesting thing to watch. But I want to talk about how media organizations are innovating. I mean, you know, there. I think there's been a bit of an interesting shift in thinking about how some of the larger news media organizations around the world are thinking about diversifying particularly revenue streams and also ways to engage audiences. So New York Times is a really interesting, you know, they recently acquired um, that really viral app, uh, Wordle. Uh, my wife likes, loves to play Wordle. She still does. But that app was developed just by a single developer in an agency, I think, in the U.S., uh, he played, I think he made it for uh, one of his friends and over a period of six weeks or so, he just had quite a huge amount of users organically through social media and people who love the game. And then the New York Times acquired it for a million dollars. But New York Times has a portfolio of really interesting games you can play on the app. The ongoing success of the recipe arm of the New York Times is, some, is kind of something that's not talked about a lot, but it's a very specific and quite successful of uh, driving subscription revenue. Uh, um, so it kind of that kind of stuff speaks volumes to how brands are driving engagement from stuff outside of the news or op-eds or opinions. So, you know, I would be interested to see how you're seeing innovation play out in the media space. Where are you seeing some of the media organizations dabbling in spaces that are a little bit outside of the realm of just pure uh, print journalism? Yeah, now where to begin there? Because there's a couple of threads. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a lot there. Um, look, I suppose, yeah, maybe starting on your, 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 your point on Wordle and the New York Times, you know, I, one of the things about particularly the news publishers, I suppose, is they didn't have to be very good at marketing in days gone by. You know, the product was the entire marketing budget, I suppose. Um, so they certainly didn't have to be very good at, at marketing subscriptions. So there's been an absolute crash course over the last decade, and they've all got a lot better at it in this country than the US, but arguably, I think, yeah, the New York Times is, is better than anyone else. And of course, it is what do you put in a subscription bundle beyond the news of the day and the analysis of the day, which, mm. which becomes fascinating. And of course, subscription bundles are, are everywhere and have been for a while, you know, you can look back at your your Foxtel subscription, for instance, over the probably 15 years. We're now obviously seeing um, a lot of the tech platforms doing their own kind of bundles. Hey, you can even buy a bundle of Apple products now. Mm. So that that is one part of it. So you've got, I suppose, innovation motivated by retaining subscribers. You also have innovation in... I suppose, just at the product level, and then innovation in business models. Um, and hey, you know, I, I, I alluded to the conversation earlier. That to me was a really great example of innovation because this was a single individual, really, Andrew Jaspin, 
uh, came together with one or two others, but he was a former editor of The Age who was very well connected, including with universities who were quite well funded. And he persuaded the university sector and some politicians to put up millions of dollars to create the conversation, which would then become this engine of sharing academic analysis, but they would use journalists to translate the academics into everyday language. And then they helped the distribution by making everything uh, available to use under Creative Commons. So everybody could then republish that content for nothing. So it found its way into a lot of mainstream media. So it, it, it solved one of main, or helped solve one of mainstream media's problems of, you know, needing more content with fewer resources, but it also solved the problems of academia, of having all of this expertise without an audience. So that was just one example for me of, of a great piece of innovation in, in funding. But you also see what the Guardian's achieved in getting you know readers to actually mm. just pay for that content without it being behind a paywall, just, just from you know wanting to support that sort of crusading journalism with a point of view or or you see the new daily launch out of melbourne which is funded effectively certainly in its launch by the super funds so there are that there have been a number of different pieces of innovation and people finding ways of you know getting these things going and 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 then there are others which are still I think the jury's still out on. So we're seeing there's an organisation called PS Media, which is trying to find a new way of effectively crowdfunding local journalism, which, you know, in, in my view, the model they've got now, if they succeed, won't won't be the model. And sometimes that's the thing. You've got to try something that doesn't work in order to get through and find the model that does. So there, you know, you, you are seeing these types of innovation. And then, of course, within the the big organisations, they're shifting where they're allocating their resources. You know, a lot of them, whether it's the newspapers, whether it's the radio networks, are seeing the opportunity in audio streaming. So a lot of them are investing in the content side of things, in podcasts. And also, if you look at somebody like uh, Southern Cross Stereo and the Listener app, they're investing in the app side of things as well. So so we're definitely seeing shifting resource. And a lot of the time, I think it's, looking out to the outside world and what the trends are and then coming along seems to be one of the stories of big media. Mm. Yeah, there's, I think there's a few examples, perhaps more in the sort of startup space. You know, I think the, the growth of newsletter type publications where it's usually just one person or a couple of people that are putting together newsletters has driven a lot of really interesting ideas around media um, and how to distribute it. So a good, few good examples is The Every. So they're a, a newsletter collective. So a band of writers, I think there's like six or seven of them, and they'll write on different aspects of tech. And it's usually just opinion, not a lot of news, but a lot of opinion. But what they've done is that they've bundled the subscription. So you buy one subscription to The Every, and then you get access to all of the um, all the all of the different writers of those newsletters, which is good because they can share audience that way. They're all they're sort of all the boats raised with the tide type concept, you know. So it's an interesting kind of concept around bundling. You've got Axios, which have I think is absolutely fascinating. They've got this really interesting uh, way of writing news and reporting, and then they uh, turn that into a SaaS product effectively. And they've started using that to train organizations, but businesses on how they should be communicating <laughs> information within their own company's context. And then they've just recently launched a series of financial newsletters targeted specifically to the financial industry. And so yeah, the innovation of media, it just continues, right? There's just so much happening. I think there's more than ever that's happening but it's happening in all kinds of different directions as well you know i think outside of media you've also got the emergence of things like retail uh, media as well right the amazons the tescos the walmarts actually setting up their own programmatic networks within their own e-commerce environment you've got even companies like woolworths in australia thinking about doing that as well because they've got a large e-commerce audience and they're selling product already so why don't they just get advertisers to get involved directly so innovation i think there's just a complete unbundling of media there's a lot of different change happening people are running in different directions and it's hard to keep up with it i think honestly i think it's it's exciting i think it's really great to see change and innovation but i want to talk about as we wrap up today tim i want to talk about your story with 
Unmade, the newsletter. Now, I want to talk about why you chose newsletters as your next big thing to work on. I recently saw in congratulations that you've hired your first staff member, which is awesome. You know, so it seems to be growing. It seems to be driving a lot of value for your audience as well. But what is actually driving that growth, do you think? And what has been your approach to newsletter writing? Yeah, I, I suppose the way I thought about emails and newsletters began to change about five years ago. So I'd, you know, I'd, I'd always carried on writing for Mumbrella, even as I became a sort of bigger part of the business. And then we eventually sold it, as I said. Um, but the, the thing I started about five years ago was a Saturday morning email uh, called Best of the Week, which was just really, it was my personal take on the week just gone. Sometimes I'd pick more than one topic. Sometimes I'd focus on one thing, but I'd, I'd you know, try and tease out a thought. And I suppose it's, you know, it, it probably helped get me ready for then writing the book really because you know just even stepping back from the day to day to look at a week changes how you look at what was actually the event of the week um but I also realized the style I was writing it was fractionally different to the style I used to write opinion pieces that were published for the web and I think some of it was preparing for the conversation that would follow in the comment thread um on the web but yeah, so it, 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 you know, it felt like I was really writing it with the reader in mind for a one-on-one conversation. Um, so that, that I suppose, really re-sparked my thinking that actually there is something different about the newsletter model. So, so I began to play with it a little bit um, during the sort of the first few months of the COVID lockdown. I was still working for Umbrella as an employee and we were asked to go to four days a week, you know, as many people were at the time. So I just started a little newsletter called Fifth Day as, you know, as a project to do on that extra day because I was I was already already interested not just in newsletters, but by then I'd begun to pick up the buzz around the Substack platform. So so I launched Fifth Day on Substack and after just a handful of editions, one of the people who signed up early was the publisher at Hardy Grant uh, Publishing, who dropped me a line and the conversation became the book. So I actually ended up parking fifth day to take some long service leave and write the book. So so I guess, you know, th- there is an argument that that was what created that book opportunity, I suppose. But then it, it, it came time to start thinking about life after Mumbrella. I, I, I'd had a four year non-compete, which had ended. It was, uh, I suppose I had an appetite to do my own thing again. So there was no big grand falling out or which sometimes there are with things like that, but there wasn't in that case. And, and they were very supportive of the launch as well. So I, 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 I rebooted Fifth Day as Unmade taking the cue from the name of the book um <laughs> really struggled to get the unmade.com.au url it wasn't available at the time so that's why it's on that slightly weird url of unmade.media although i have since managed to snaffle unmade.com.au so i'm oh, trying to make my well yeah no i was very delighted but just suddenly it was available one day having emailed the owner of it a few times and heard nothing back so they they obviously had gone on to bigger and better things so I uh, hey I've got to decide whether to switch across to having now now started whether to switch across to unmade.com.au or or even wait until I get unmade.au as we're now going the next round of the day but but that's a that's a side issue obviously and then I was very fortunate that just a few weeks into that journey I'd, I'd previously interviewed on a podcast Hamish McKenzie one of the founders of Substack who's a a Kiwi and a journalist by background and they run a program for journalists around the world where effectively they help de-risk and fund their first year of the project so you know there's a financial aspect to it which you you, you, you kind of asked not to give too much detail on but they also provide all this extra support including audio editing support, design support, access to Getty images which is, is, is very useful. So all the things you might get in a big newsroom that they kind of provide to get you going for your first year. And they ask that as part of that, you turn on subscriptions early as well. So that's been a big part of the journey, I think, is, is building up an audience, a database of a little over 6,000 now, building up a paying audience of which, you know, that's just over 200 people so far. And I 
and I suppose maybe where I differ to your typical newsletter writer is, hey, you know, I've always been a B2B owner or editor where I guess my philosophy is you build the brand, you build the trust, and then you um, hang a number of baubles on the Christmas tree. So, <laughs> you know, for, for, for me, I don't think advertising is a dirty word. So when, when you're part of that Substack programme, they ask you not to take any advertising for the first year. So until September, I won't be. But after that, I you know, I think I will be. But the fascinating thing for me is that paid subscription tier because that's the thing where I'm learning something new that I didn't have before. And the conversations I have with my colleague, Damien Francis, who's, who's recently joined, as you were saying, is firstly, it gives us the chance to think about, okay, are we, are we actually a membership organisation? Is that our central thought? And it, it, you know, it lets us have an organising thought that says, okay, everything we do, it might not always be paid for, but everything we do should be worth paying for. So, you know, when we put on an event, is it a high quality event? When we publish something, is it something we're, we're, we're really proud of? Because I think there's a, you know, the last thing the media marketing industry needs is another newswire of all of the press releases of the day. You know, there are so many of those there. So, so it feels like where we can add value is, is, is in content and analysis. So we've just published our first sort of, you know, deep dive where Damien just looked in depth at the the marketing sector of insurance, which is actually a lot more fascinating and a lot more nuanced and a lot more hard battled than you think. So just really looking at who the key players are, the different strategies, and just thinking deeply about that for a few days and then putting that behind the paywall. And hopefully those who choose to subscribe or, you know, we're playing with all of those things like seven day trials and all of those things like what they read enough that they choose to support us so you know we're at the early stages and again that membership thing is when we do events I'm sure there'll be a a much better price for people who buy a ticket who are a subscriber so it just changes the way how we think about things um we might fail some of the most enjoyable and, and interesting things we did at Mumbrella were failures. So that model might not work. There is no guarantee it will work, but I find it quite interesting having the opportunity just to, to do something that we enjoy every day. And for me, mainly it's, it's writing and thinking about the media and marketing industry and maybe it will succeed. Well, you know, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, cause I've been on the journey now of about 18 months writing a newsletter week to week. And, um, it does give you this, I think, this interesting platform to build other businesses. So as you mentioned before, you've got the Christmas tree, different baubles, right? And you get all these different opportunities. I mean, um, Casey Newton from the platformer um, journalist space in the States, he went and launched a Substack, I think about a little bit long, longer than a year ago now. But his view was that, well, back when I was working as a journalist and one of the bigger brands, I had one boss and then there was a single point of failure. Right. So I could be fired for whatever cause. But now I've got like 1,500 employers. So my job is actually more secure um, than it was in the newsroom, which I think is actually a very interesting way of thinking about it. Because unless you're doing, you know, you're not delivering value for a long period of time, it's actually pretty hard to lose a paying subscriber. They really believe in what you're doing. I found personally that I've got readers that would read every week, want to talk to me about whatever I'm writing about week to week. And there's a real stickiness that comes with that. There's a membership. If you've got a community layer, which a lot of newsletters have as well, there's a real, there's a real sort of stickiness to that, particularly around, I think, industry-focused newsletters, you know, talking about media, talking about finance, fintech, marketing technology, whatever those industries are, like people actually find a lot of value and a lot of almost like a home with some of these newsletters. Um, one really great story was a, a guy I met, a newsletter subscriber who read a newsletter. I think it was one on around single view of customer. And it just really resonated with what he was going on in his business. And so uh, he reached out to me on LinkedIn, wanted to talk. I said, hey, talk, we've got this online community. You know, there's a few people there and we just talk about MarTech all day. Great. And he joined and, you know, he's just been almost running the community. He's just so invested because he feels like he found that place where he can really talk and learn about the industry, you know, and I find that that's actually a really great way to 
to sort of build out those different business models, but also be able to serve those particular audiences really well. Um, so this has been a fantastic conversation. Uh, thank you so much, Tim, for adding your perspective. Really great to get you on the podcast. But last question for you, where can we find you on the internet? Look, the best place to start is probably that terrible URL, unmade.media. <laughs> it's so confusing. The book's called Media Unmade and the URL is unmade.media. So it's the other way around. Um, and from there, you'll find all of the right, you, you know, you'll find me on Twitter and everywhere else as well. But that's a good starting point. As I say, there is a, there's a free tier. So if you haven't already, yeah, please do sign up for the, uh, for the newsletter. I'd love to carry on that. As, as you say, it's a community. You know, that's the single most important thing is, is, I think the the, the newsletters that are going to succeed are the ones that build a community. So, um, mm. so please do come and be part of the Unmade community. Please do. We will be regularly interviewing people who are featured every week in the Martech Weekly newsletter. People like Tim, who are at the forefront of the industry, thinking deeply about it. And we delve into topics that subscribers care about. So if you'd like to read and subscribe, you can head to the martechweekly.com. 